bustling down on campus. I haven't been down on campus when school is actually in session in quite some time. Usually we do our campus check-ins here for the business angle here at Studio 49 when school is uh, not in session or it's spring break, but you're back in the classroom. Absolutely. And uh, man, I mean, it's the business school, so I saw half the Grizz football team. That's kind of how it usually goes on my way up the stairs, but uh, cool to be about around the kids. I haven't been around like the bustle of the of campus in a while. Yeah, it's nice to see the place come back to life. You know, yeah. I like campus when it's quiet, like in the summer or over winter break, but I also love it when it's uh, at the beginning of the semester in particular, when students are excited about their new classes and, you know, the sort of cynicism hasn't quite set in. Yeah, so it's good. It's a good time to be on campus. Justin Angle here on Nuana's now coming to you from the Gallagher Business Building here on the University of Montana campus. We're in his cool podcast studio, which is made uh, possible in part by Blackfoot Communications. I got to tell you, I listened to, uh, I guess it's not quite the latest one, but mm-hmm. your, your uh, New Angle podcast with... Uh, John Adams from the right. Montana Free Press loved it. Great conversation. If anybody that has any sort of interest in journalism and sort of knowing how it all works, first of all, he's just a fascinating guy. Yes. Uh, but I thought you did a great job at the interview. And I think that what the work he is doing is uh, incredibly important. Yeah, I think so. And, and and for listeners that aren't familiar with Montana Free Press, it is a nonprofit source of Montana journalism. And there is, you know, as have local media institutions sort of gone out of business or been consolidated into bigger corporate entities. There has been a rise of nonprofit journalism in small markets, Montana Free Press being one of them, the Daily Montanan being another. And John makes the case that this is a scalable model for a, a new type, well, not necessarily a new type of journalism, but but to make um, local news journalism a sustainable operation. I thought his point that was so that resonated so much with me is not only I, I, I he and I have have spoken many times mm-hmm. because we have similar backgrounds, similar desires for what we want the sort of the new age of journalism to look like. Uh, stay tuned on that actually because we are potentially working on some collaboration with the Montana Free Press. We actually cool. covered the national championship game uh, on on behalf of Skyline Sports, but also we shared some content with them because I just thought, you know, I mean, it's a huge deal and they don't have any sports people at this moment. Yeah. So we're working on that. But I thought one thing that John said was we, we've gotten to this point now where there are some there are some ability to get news, but the, the biggest challenge has been then to make it affordable to people. Like he wants people to know you know certain things like sports, okay, you want to pay your $10 subscription or $5 subscription or whatever it might be, but you need certain things for community sustainability to be affordable, if not free, Yeah, to have a great community. And I thought that was a great point by him. It's not just about making it a sustainable enterprise from a business standpoint. It's about making it a sustainable craft to present to the people. Yeah, there's a value to a citizenry of having access to that local information. And, you know, he says this on the show that free is a business model. You know, I think you can poke holes at that. I think there's been, you know, journalism has not had a good track record of, you know, sustainability in the internet age. The decision to make content free online has been a problem in many ways. But, uh, in the case of Montana Free Press and a few others, they're figuring out ways to do it that appears to be sustainable and aligned with high-quality journalism, too. That's a New Angle podcast. You can find it on all your various podcast hosting platforms. A pretty simple when it comes to the format of it. I mean, they just want to Justin and his team just want to highlight cool people or in and around Montana doing cool things. So uh, the John Adams episode certainly one that resonated with me, but all of them are, are very good. So go and uh, subscribe on all your various podcast hosting platforms. That podcast, as well as this podcast slash segment here on Nuanas Now, probably presented 
by Blackfoot Communications to see how Blackfoot can help you and your small business. Visit Blackfoot, goblackfoot.com. Uh, speaking of, <laughs> I, I, I only laugh because I'm so sad. Speaking of entities that were pillars in the world of journalism, yeah. particularly in the world of sports writing, I mean, there, I'm sure there are many uh, men of my age that are sports writers now that when they were little kids, they said, Mom, I want to grow up someday and work for Sports Illustrated. My mom gave me a box of some of my stuff from elementary school, and there was like a letter I wrote to myself from fifth grade that said, yeah, someday I'll be a writer for Sports Illustrated. The, the goal was never achieved, and now it seems like it's not going to be achieved because Sports Illustrated is basically saying, we're going to be written by AI until we go out of business. And uh, wow. there's a lot of different factors that go into this. But what did you think of this? I mean, this is a this is a monolith. I mean, this is this is a titan in the sports uh, industry. And uh, as of I guess last week, it's going to look a lot different if not completely go away. Yeah, and I got to say, like, yes, you have a personal connection as a sports journalist. I have a personal connection in that my uncle was the publisher. Wow, of Sports Illustrated, amazing. Long ago, he you know moved up the ranks of uh, Sports Illustrated in the publishing industry, moved over to be the executive publisher of Life Magazine, wow. and then moved up into Time, Lifetime Warner when they merged. So that was his career path. And I remember as a child, I would get... Uh, you know the, the whatever the subscri- subscriber gifts to Sports Illustrated, yeah. we got those as Christmas gifts from nice. my uncle. Like the football film <laughs> was one that I remember. So he, yeah, I mean it is. It's it's a loss worth lamenting, but I think the story is one of you know a company that just did not innovate its product yeah. to align with the demands of the consumer. In many ways, the the changes to the product, I think, you know they so did not have a robust web presence, did not have Mm -hmm. quality video content, Mm -hmm. did not have a robust podcasting platform, did Mm -hmm. not give their amazing stable of writers opportunities to engage with their audience in innovative ways. And so those writers missed the chance to cultivate their market and share their product in innovative ways. And also a lot of the quality writers jumped to platforms that could do that. Along those lines, I, I, I think it must be said that Sports Illustrated kind of was caught up in some of the cultural zeitgeist as well that right. has um, captured is maybe a strong word, but a lot of the media industry in general, print magazines in general, has traditionally been left-leaning, but I think the, the latest kind of rise of you know social justice as a really important priority for these institutions Maybe it has worked for news gathering organizations uh, and politically oriented journalism. I don't think it works in a sports market, right? I don't think that's what sports fans want. And, you know, when you start taking something. Sports fans generally want sports. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, let's just look at the swimsuit issue. So this is shaky ground for me to comment on. It is. Swimsuit issue is a thing and it is what it is. And we can talk about the the sort of merits of that as a product and and who it caters to. And and I'm going to set that aside. But the people that want the swimsuit issue, that look forward to the swimsuit issue, they do not want Martha Stewart on the cover of the swimsuit issue. That's right. Now, you can say whatever you want about the decision to put her and other folks like her on the cover or whatever, but that's just not what the customer wants, right? And those customers go away. And if you don't have customers, you don't have a magazine. And you don't have customers, you don't have advertisers that want to uh, put their ads on your platform. And it's just, 
you know, it's a, it was a product that didn't, just didn't read the room and uh, understand its market. I think that there's, there's an element there. I think that there's, I've thought about this extensively. I think there's a lot of different elements that go in. I think everything you just said is completely uh, on point in terms of not being able to evolve with the modern way of media presentation. And the part, the point about the writers not necessarily engaging with their audience, but forever and ever, writers at Sports Illustrated's name recognition was all they needed, right? Oh, S- yeah. S.L. Price, Gary Smith. Rick you Riley, you, you might not even. But Rick Riley was the only one who knew what it looked like because he had the little picture on the back mm-hmm. page. I didn't even know what Gary Smith looked like until he had been retired for years. But that was sort of the allure. That that's completely changed, and they just weren't ready for that change. I also think that, for better or worse, I think it's worse. We as a society just don't have the the patience and the dedication to be consumed by long form journalism. There are there's a huge audience for it. I shouldn't say that. There's a niche audience for it. It has gone down significantly because people want five minute scrolls on their phone. They don't want to sit. The vast majority of people, I should say, don't want to sit and read a 20 minute story. They want a five minute story. So I think there's part of it there too. And then I also think there's a just the gravitation away from print advertising. I mean, I think that the big corporate people just aren't necessarily putting as much of their budget into print ads as they were in the you know 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, I, I think that's the factor I would give most credence to. I mean, I, yeah, there has been there are there are changes in in consumer preferences, but you look at the rise of you know platforms like Substack, like that's a place where long form journalism is thriving, and it's a subscriber based model. People are subscribing directly to individual journalists, and that's another factor that played against uh, SI in general. You know, top flight journalists taking it straight to the consumer, um, whether it's long form or short form, they're able to go to that market directly. Yeah. If you're an advertiser, why would you put your dollars in, in Sports Illustrated when you can get a stronger rate of return, better targeting through so many different uh, outlets right now? Business Angle, Justin Angle here on Nuan is now coming to you from Studio 49 down here uh, at the Gallagher Business Building on the UM campus. Last thought on Sports Illustrated, then we'll get to some other stuff. From a marketing standpoint, I think that being on the Sports Illustrated cover was once upon a time like the initial launch, like the delivery oh, yeah. point and or the reaffirmation, right? The first time was when you became a star. You know, the, the fifth time is when you became th- this complete, you know, titan in, in your sports world. And then if you became like Muhammad Ali or Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, who are on 50 plus times now, you know, you're the GOAT of Sports Illustrated covers. But it used to be that was like this windfall moment for, for athletes. Is there a, a parallel to that? I mean, what has replaced that this day and age? Is there one? I don't really know if there's something comparable to it, right? Yeah, I, I mean, the thing that comes to mind is like hosting Saturday Night Live. Sure, right. Right. If, it if, used to be like that for like for superstars to be on Johnny Carson for sure. like TV stars or, or on SNL, right? You're saying SNL, you host SNL or you perform live as a band. That was like the delivery point for your stardom. Yeah, and I think even those platforms sort of have um, – less reach than they used to totally and and i think too like with with hosting saturday night live like there's a product that you know not only is there the live broadcast on saturday night then it gets repurposed through social and through other other video platforms and so it has you know that piece of cultural relevance that watershed moment for uh, you know a performer um can have an enduring effect outside of just that moment whereas a magazine cover yeah it can sit on a coffee table for a long time and you you know if you're a michael jordan fan you can collect the michael jordan covers but um it's sort of enduring ability to sort of capture people outside of that week is a little less i think 
it had got like a life of its own. I mean, I remember yeah. Bill Knowles, the late Bill Knowles, who, who passed away last year. He was a pro- journalism professor, media. He taught media arts or uh, intro to journalism, journalism 101. It was a fun class because a lot of kids would take it, even if they weren't going into journalism. It was like the whole history of media, basically. But uh, we had to write papers for it. And I wrote my paper freshman year on the Sports Illustrated cover jinx. Mm. Was it real? Was it not? Yeah. All the different examples of, of how it all played out. But that, I mean, that was that, that showed you just the, the clout uh, of it all. Pivoting to the NFL, a couple questions for you about the uh, the saga that continues. The Kansas City Chiefs just can't lose now that we're into de- uh, December and January. They were... They were completely up a creek about a month and a half ago, and now they're just awesome because that's just how it goes with the Chiefs. Mahomes is special. He's annoying, but he's special. But regardless, Taylor Swift remains on television as well. You know, the the conspiracy theorists want to say that the NFL scriptwriters were making sure that this mm. happens. I don't know if I go as far as that, but I will say the NFL is probably very pleased that Taylor Swift remains a part of their uh, Sunday viewing package. Yeah, it seems more compelling than, than the Bills. <laughs> right. You know, and Bills are sort of, they, they played the role of the heartbreak kids yet again. Oh, so man. that fits into that narrative as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's striking. Wide right is going to haunt Bills fans of a certain age for, for years and years and years. I wanted to ask you, though, that a couple weeks ago that during Kansas City's wildcard playoff <laughs> game, they put it exclusively on yeah. the Peacock app. This was a brand new thing, streaming on an app that's a subscription service. I was like, man, I wonder how that's going to do for the ratings. I wonder if it kills ratings. How many people are willing to pay? It's only, I think, five bucks, six bucks. But is that going to hurt it? Well, it didn't at all. 23 million people got the app and then subscribed to uh, the Peacock for that, at least that one night. So Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of different ways to look at this. It's hard to argue against it being an unmitigated success. Right. right? 23 million uh, viewers on a platform that prior to that had about 30 million subscribers. Right. So so that's a huge sort of conversion huge. of your subscribers to viewers. It costs six bucks a month to subscribe to Peacock. So one, that creates an incentive towards streaming, right? If you can have Indeed. this sort of this sort of success, it will be copied, right? People will put games behind paywalls and are we gonna talk is it is it going to become pay per view or is it going to become something else? And then we got to look at the dynamics of the product, right? Like it's not, a, it, the NFL is not an inventory sport, mm-hmm. right? It's not like baseball or basketball that just has so many games. Sure. So a playoff game is not a unique thing, but it is somewhat singular in, in terms of having singular demand. So question to me is NBC paid $110 million for the rights to that game. If they, if you know, just say roughly, like if if they generated twenty million new subscribers out of that, it's six bucks a month. They're going to have to hold on to those subscribers mm-hmm. for for some number of months, some large number of months, to sort of make up for mm-hmm. that that hundred and ten million dollars that they charged that they paid up front. So yes, streamers make money with a subscription model. Like their model is not dissimilar to gyms. They make money when. They have members that don't use the product, right, right? Right. But if we're creating this world where you're forced to subscribe to a different network, and these networks or these different, you know, you're forced to subscribe to a streamer, and these streamers don't have much ability to capture you, are we just going to become so transient? So, is mm-hmm. a better model to just go back to like pay per view? So you have. Uh, you know, a higher upfront free, but it's just a one-day thing. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It's certainly a, a, 
admirable experiment because, I mean, I think on the surface, at least, it appears like it works. We'll see if this is the future. We'll see if it's replicable. I think it's TBD at this point. Yeah, and a recurring theme uh, you know, that you often bring up is, like, can the NFL lose? And here's an example. Like, in a streaming world, uh, I think the NFL accrues even more power, um, particularly if it goes toward paying per event. Right, a subscription world might work better for a um, an inventory sport like a like a basketball or, or baseball. But um, if you are sort of exploiting, you know, these one time events by putting them behind a paywall and forcing people to subscribe to your streamer or pay for access to your streamer for a day, you know that that power accrues to the NFL in that model. Business angle with Justin Angle, presented by Blackfoot Communications. Listen to Nuana's now here uh, on ESPN Radio. You and I are both on the same page here. The NFL is in the midst of an antitrust lawsuit all about NFL Sunday ticket, and we don't really know what the, what the ground to stand on is, right? Basically, people are the, the plaintiffs are trying to gather people that are saying that it, there's an antitrust violation by the NFL making you buy the entire NFL Sunday ticket rather than just being able to buy the Chargers or the Seahawks or the Vikings or the Packers. I don't know what to make of this other than it's just uh, just an, another sign of just how broad and powerful the NFL has become. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard to see what the actual harm in <laughs> right. this claim is in, in a way that's new. Right, right. Like right. the NFL's before streaming existed used to blackout games all the time. Totally. Like if they didn't sell enough tickets to a home stadium, the, you couldn't broadcast the game in that local media market. Mm-hmm. You know, that seems anti-competitive in the same way that this is anti-competitive. And so it's hard to really, you know, with I haven't been able to wrap my head around, like, what exactly are the plaintiffs calling for and what is the harm and, and what is the remedy they're looking for? Are they looking for a world where you can buy single games? And if that's the world we're looking for, like, is the NFL going to move toward you know, that pay-per-view model like boxing that we talked about a few moments ago. They want to sell subscriptions. They want to lock people in for a predictable amount of revenue over a long period of time. But I think like this this Peacock story that we just talked about is, is linked to this antitrust lawsuit, not, not directly, but in sort of a conceptual way. It'll be interesting to see where our, you know, how our viewing consumption is structured as, as this technology sort of uh, moves forward. It's amazing how many... Uh different common themes we've had in the couple yeah. years that we've been doing this, but they keep on carrying on. I do say, I do think that uh, our our predictions of what's coming have been very, very good. And the latest one is that Netflix is paying $5 billion, that's right, billion with a B, for the streaming rights for Monday Night Raw. I used to be the biggest professional wrestling fan in the whole world. That was when I was a child, and then I grew up. I don't know like what the selling point is to have such a broad audience still, but they do. Mm-hmm. And uh, still, though, that number seems staggering to me. More than anything, though, I thought Darren Ravel, who's a great uh, financial journalist, speaking of Sports Illustrated, he used to work for Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. Now he's sort of just an independent guy that analyzes, like we do, the overlay between business and sports. And he said the bigger story here is that, not that Netflix acquired Monday Night Raw, it's that these streaming platforms have this sort of capital to go out and bid for uh, streaming rights. And uh, you wonder if that's something that they get into the market for, for the NBA, the NFL, uh, Major League Baseball, some of the, you know, maybe not professional wrestling-like, but even bigger uh, professional sports. Yeah, I I think we need to interrogate that a little bit. Like, 
yes, Apple and Amazon have the capital to acquire rights to to the to the primary sports here, and I think we're going to see more of that. It's not because they're making money off of streaming. Right. It's because they have cash machines in the form of Amazon Prime subscriptions uh-huh. and this uh-huh. and AWS Amazon Web Services and Apple. You know, prints money off of the iPhone and the the charging a thirty percent haircut for every app that's subscribe to over the app store, right? So they have these cash machines that allow them to subsidize the streaming business. Mm -hmm. Netflix is probably the only like streamer with a profitable business model that has proven to be sustainable over time. And they've accrued power over time in the sense that they built their own content and you saw power accrued in Netflix during the uh, writers and actors strike because so much of their content was made overseas. Right, they're they're sourcing product from all over the world. They're employing writers all over the world, writers that haven't gone on strike in the same way. So, you know, the Netflix deal with um, wrestling is is really interesting because <clears throat> think about Peacock a moment ago. Like they were able to capture a bunch of subscribers based on this one time event. Are they going to keep those subscribers? Right. Well, who knows? Right. Netflix made this move into live streaming. I mean, they've done it with some comedy specials, the Chris Rock special being the one that was a big success. Now with WWE, they've they've paired with a sport that is year round. For sure. Right. WWE has has events, has matches, whatever. I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> yeah, Things matches, happening, sure. brawls happening yeah, yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. Right. So if you're a Netflix subscriber thinking about, you know, leaving to go put your money onto Peacock or put it onto Disney Plus or one of these other networks, sure. I mean, we're sort of all managing these portfolios of subscriptions. This is just another reason for you to keep that Netflix subscription going right? For you to not like, that's the one I'm going to keep. And I'll sort of surf around these other ones as needed, but this is the one I'm going to keep. Well, the the most interesting part too, is that the formula in the eighties and nineties for the WWF, now the WWE was you give people the lead up matches for free on Monday nights and on Thursday nights or whatever, a month at a time. And then you have this giant pay-per-view. Oh, you want to see what actually happens in the heavyweight championship match? You never actually got to see Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan wrestle. You just got to see them point fingers at each other on Monday night, and then all of a sudden you got to buy WrestleMania. Now maybe that replaces it. Maybe you're getting people to pay the pay-per-view at a cheaper, quote-unquote, cheaper cost to watch all the Monday night stuff, but then they're getting the... I don't know if they're going to keep doing that or if this is just another way to build for these big pay-per-views. I'm not sure. Well, and it's great. That sort of model is much more predictable for the WWE, right? They get $500 million a year for 10 years, right? So that's predictable revenue that they can make business decisions based on, that they can invest in in a predictable way. That previous model of sort of holding you or sort of betting on the fact that people would tune in for these you know, premier events and putting them behind a paywall, that's still a bit of a gamble. This is a much more secure form of revenue, even if it's probably more money in the aggregate anyway, but it's still more stable and businesses like stable revenue. The Business Angle with Justin Angle here on Nuwana's Now every couple of weeks. Presented by Blackfoot Communications. Visit goblackfoot.com to see how Blackfoot can help you and your small business. Thanks for being here, man. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for being here.